Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is the place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. It is the spring of Israel's 75th anniversary since its founding and our focus as a synagogue, as a community, and as a community totally engaged in the present opportunities and the challenges of the modern miracle of the state of Israel. Um, That is where our focus and energy is, and it's with that thought in mind that I am so honored and so excited to welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue podcast Rick Richman, who is a well-published author. His most recent publication is called And None Shall Make Them Afraid, Eight Stories of the Modern State of Israel. Uh, Rick Richman is a resident scholar at American Jewish University and He's the author not just of this new, his newest book, And None Shall Make Them Afraid, but also Racing Against History, the 1940 campaign for a Jewish army to fight Hitler. He graduated from Harvard and NYU Law and has written for Commentary, The Jewish Journal, Jewish Review of Books, Mosaic Magazine, New York Post, New York, a, a whole bunch of things. And he's the author of the chapter on Brandeis and American Zionism in What America Owes the Jews, What Jews Owe America. And of all of Rick's uh, many uh, accolades, achievements, uh, he is a proud member of my home synagogue, Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, and he is a family friend. He has known me long before the rabbinic story of Elliot Cosgrove began, and so I feel like I'm in the company of family. Rick, welcome to Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. Thank you, Rabbi. It's an honor to be here. All right. And if you slip, we will not uh, fault you because you were calling me Elliot long before anyone called me Rabbi, or more directly, Malcolm and Gay's third son. So this book, and none shall make them afraid. It presents eight figures. I, I have to tell you, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But what I thoroughly enjoyed it most of all is you don't actually have to read it cover to cover. You can dip into one chapter, dip into another chapter. One, And I'll just list the figures. Um, uh, four figures from Europe. Theodore Herzl, Chaim Weizmann, Vladimir Jabotinsky, and Abba Eben. And four from America. Louis Brandeis, Golda Meir, Ben Hecht, and Ron Dermer, who reflect the intellectual and social revolutions that Zionism and Americanism brought to the world. So, so my question to you is, um, what is the, the story behind this volume? It's a tremendous volume, and none shall make them afraid. How, how, how did this book come to be? Well, it, it, it came to be sort of the way everything happens in life by accident. I was, I was just looking at both 
the early history of Zionism, trying to read primary sources, the speeches of Herzl, Nordau, Louis Brandeis, Jabotinsky, I'm Weitzman, trying to get a feel for how it all began. And uh, when I did that, the speeches, the letters, the, um, uh, the diary entries were so interesting. I started looking into the individuals behind them. And you're correct that you can dip into anywhere in this book at random. And this individual story will be quite fascinating. Even the people that you think you know, you'll find things you didn't know about them. And the people that you don't know or don't know a lot about you'll find things in there that you're amazed actually happened. And um, so I put them together and uh, I realized, I didn't write them chronologically, but what I realized was that if I put them together in the book chronologically, they effectively were a history of Zionism told by the lives of these eight individuals almost as an invisible baton passed from one to another over 125 years. And that you, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not intended to be a book like so many other books, a history of the, of, of the diplomatic, political, religious history of Israel. It's an attempt to bring it all the way down to ground level and tell it through the lives of individuals who devoted themselves to an ideal and an idea and traveled the world sometimes or to the frontier of Palestine and to try and convey the story as the sweep of individuals, not just the sweep of history or the story of a country. So that's what I was trying to do. And I realized that four were from America, four were from Europe. And so it also crystallized the alliance in the 20th century between Zionism and Americanism and how that alliance was critical to the formation of the Jewish state. So that's what I was trying to do. Um, so so is, it, is it all, uh, you know, so there are plenty of biographies on Herzl, right? Let's just start with the, the kickoff chapter. And I don't know who's, I don't want to say who's the most famous. They're all famous individuals. But, you know, is, is it, you're, you're just giving a chapter on the life of Herzl. Are you debunking myths? that we tell ourselves about some of these founding fathers and mothers? Are you uh, giving us a new new vision? You know, we, we tell ourselves a story about Herzl, about Dreyfus and whatnot. Um, but we also know that, you know, sometimes we, we tell simple stories which make us feel good, but are not necessarily true. Uh, what, what did you discover about Herzl? Well, uh, a number of things. One is I grew up thinking of Herzl as this austere, uh, uh, individual with a world-class beard who came up with an idea for a Jewish state, which seems sort of elementary to us now. And I started reading both what he wrote and his life. And when you realize he was 35 years old when he wrote the Jewish state, and he devoted his next nine years to the project that he had outlined. And then he died at the age of 44. And the things that he accomplished were so remarkable, and the difficulties he went through were so extensive, and his effort was so dedicated. It was an amazing story. So first, I wanted to tell that story. But second, you're correct. I did want to debunk, uh, or at least correct, I wouldn't say debunk, uh, uh, the basic myth 
about Herzl, which sort of minimizes his accomplishment. The myth is that he was an assimilated Jew who was a foreign correspondent in Paris, and he witnessed the Dreyfus trial, and he heard the crowd shouting death to the Jews, and that gave him the realization that the Jews had to leave Europe and have a state of their own. Right, that's what I was taught in Hebrew school. That's partially true. He was a foreign correspondent in uh, Paris. He did cover the Dreyfus trial. He did witness the public degradation of Dreyfus after he was convicted. But it's not true that the crowd shouted death to the Jews. They shouted either death to the Jew, singular, or death to Judas. But they did not castigate the entire Jewish people. And the reason we know this is we have Herzl covered it. So we have his press reports. We have his private diary. So we know what he thought. And I went back and I checked what the New York Times said about the trial and the degradation. And the fact is, everybody, including Herzl, thought Dreyfus was guilty because that's the way the case was mm. presented at the time. It wasn't until four years later when Emile Zola famously wrote Jacques that it came out that Dreyfus had been framed. Uh, but at the time that Herzl witnessed it, everybody simply assumed it was unfortunately a Jew, but clearly a traitor. Um, so if it, was, if it wasn't Dreyfus... Then what was the seed to Herzl's uh, Jewish state? About six months after the Dreyfus trial, Herzl is in Paris and then in Vienna, and he witnesses Luger in Vienna winning the election on an express platform of anti-Semitism. And this is much more serious to Dreyfus than the sort of social anti-Semitism in Paris, which he thought was mild and laughable. But Vienna was his home. It was the cultural capital of Eastern Europe and where there were twice as many Jews in Vienna as in all of France. And now it was not simply a benighted chair, uh, 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 clergy that was expressing anti-Semitism. It was a politician who was successful mm -hmm in a democratic election in a very literate part of Europe and in the center of, West, of, of civilization and, and Jewish life. This then became something that crystallized his views. But he didn't know where it came from. He, he got this idea that there ought to be a Jewish state, and everyone thought he was half mad or, or perhaps totally crazy. Yeah. And, but he had the idea, and it captivated him and possessed him. And he himself didn't know where it came from, but it took over mm -hmm. his life. All right. Now, let's turn to one of the Americans, uh, uh, Louis Brandeis. And I was always taught the story that he was a proud Jew, that he sort of was the first one to come up the ranks through Harvard Law. And in spite of his, his, his fierce you know, pride in his, anti, in his Judaism, and he, he transcended the forces of anti-Semitism, and and thus was born the found you know one of the founders of the Zionist Organization of America, and and there again you correct the narrative. Um, what what's the story of uh, how Brandeis became Brandeis? Yeah, the true story is really quite a quite different and b much more impressive. 
He grew up, he was born in Louisville, Kentucky, to two parents who had come from Prague after the failure of the 1848 revolutions. And they gave him no Jewish education. They never went to shul. They did not celebrate Jewish holidays. He was not bar mitzvah. He did get into Harvard at age 18. He didn't go to college. He went straight to law school. He got the highest grades in the history of the school. And he became, as we all know, a very famous lawyer, but with no connection to either Judaism or the organized Jewish community. And one day, he grants an interview on an insurance law question to Jacob de Haas, another unknown name, but just briefly, Jacob de Haas was Herzl's lieutenant 15 years before during the Zionist conference. And there he is talking to Brandeis, and he tells him about Herzl. And for the first time, Brandeis really learns about Jewish history and Zionism. And Brandeis spends the entire summer studying these great works, speeches by Herzl, Ahad Ha'am, Nordau, and others. And he becomes, in effect, a convert to Zionism. And but for Herzl, but for Brandeis, there really wouldn't have been, at least at the time, a significant American Zionist movement. And so it happened in one of these, in quotation marks, accidents of history, where somebody who knew Herzl met Brandeis, and Brandeis took it from there. So uh, let's keep going, because this is sort of like a, a speed round, speed dating on, on this. Um, Golda Meir, what I was thinking with Golda was uh, that, um, is it an American story or is it an Israeli story? And I think what you get at in your chapter on Golda is that it's a bit of both, right? Golda's not Golda if she's not American. Golda's not Golda if she's not accepted as a Sabra. And um, so, so what was the, the sort of alchemy in her personal biography that made the magic possible? Yeah, we all, we all remember Golda as the grandmother who became the prime minister at age 71, served for four years. But her story begins in Kiev. In Ukraine, that's where she's born. And she lives her first eight years there. And then uh, her father goes ahead of the family after the pogroms in Russia and establishes a job in Milwaukee. And she and her mother and her two sisters, three years later, walk to the border, escape from the country through bribes and false identities, and make their way to Milwaukee. And she lives a wonderful life in Milwaukee. She's amazed that in Milwaukee, her father is a member of a union and marches on a Labor Day parade. And there are police on horseback there who protect him. Mm. Whereas back in Ukraine, they would have beaten him. And so she goes from one of the worst anti-Semitic autocracies in Russia to one of the freest communities in America which has a socialist mayor or socialist congressperson and is realizing these socialist ideals that Golda had. And then she marries another socialist, Morris Meyerson, and the, and the Balfour Declaration comes out in 1917, and she conditions her marriage on him agreeing that they can move to Palestine as soon as the war ends. But that's so interesting because why it sounds like America was a promised land at that moment you know, having fled Ukraine. So there must have been something that prompted her to say, no, this story is not an American story. 
it's Palestine-Israel-directed? I think, what you know, it's hard to answer your question because Golda did not have a diary. She did not write letters. She did not give long speeches. She had many pithy sayings. But there's not a, we have her autobiography, but it was ghostwritten. So we don't have a lot of material to answer your question. So I'm being a little bit speculative here in answering it. But I would say that she had a Jewish identity uh, from living in Russia and a good Jewish community in Milwaukee. And she had socialist ideals. And like many others, she saw Palestine as an undeveloped country that had obvious uh, Jewish connections to Jewish history. And she wanted to go there and be part of it and realize both Jewish freedom and socialist ideals in a small country and make history at the same time. Ironically, her, her husband, Morris Meyerson, did not want to go. He was perfectly happy right. pursuing socialism in Milwaukee. But she had something more, and it came from somewhere in her soul. We don't know exactly, but eventually she'd become the fourth prime minister of the Jewish state. Right. And, and the fact that she was an American able to do the fundraising she was in those early state with unaccented English was key to her her success absolutely she was she was um a she she spoke perfect english she was attractive and articulate and um a ben-gurion ben-gurion said um she was the woman who got the money that made the state um he also said she was the best man in his cabinet which golda always thought was um, a ridiculous compliment, as if being a man, you know a great man was was the highest goal she could achieve. Wow. So she had a very strong sense of herself right. and her role in history. She wanted to be an individual, not a woman. Um, she wanted to 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 do right. something important. And and Ben Gurion's statement about being the woman who got the money that created the state was not flippant. She was, she was an absolutely critical figure in her trips to America during the 30s and thereafter to raise that money. All right, I'm going to ask you three, we're, believe it or not, we're, we don't have all the time in the world. So I'm going to ask you three questions, each of which could be a podcast of its own. Okay, and I'm going to rapid fire here. So number one, who is not in your book? Who is what? Who's an also ran that you are agonized? You you stay up at night and say, "Ah, oh, I should I I should have put Shimon Perez. I should have put you know uh, this person. Who what? Who bugs you that's not in your book? Okay, the people who 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 are famous that are not in the book but don't bug me is Ben Gurion, for example, Menachem Begin, and the reason they're in the not in the book is that people basically do know their stories. Okay. In terms of the people who are not in the book, if I were able to do it, um, I would include a chapter about the spouses of these people, mm-hmm. and uh, starting with my uh, w- w- with Morris Meyerson, who really gave up sort of yeah. everything to enable her uh, Golda to to go to Palestine, become the first. He was the one who raised their children. Right. And the same with some of the other spouses, Paula um, Ben-Gurion. The story I like to tell about Paula and, and, and David Ben-Gurion was after he retired and they're living in the kibbutz and he's in bed, they're in bed, they're both reading. He's reading a history 
of the Jewish people all the way back to the beginning. He puts the book down and he turns to Paula and he says, do you know how many truly great leaders of Israel there has been in all of Jewish history? And she says, yes, I do. And he says, you do? And she says, yes, I do. He says, well, okay, how many? And he says, one fewer than you think. <laughs> and she was, she, I mean, that typified, she was a very strong woman. And he was gone in, during 1940, in the time, time period of my first book, he was gone for nine months. She had to hold down the home front without a job um, to enable Ben-Gurion to wow. be Ben-Gurion. So I would, so, I wish I could put all the spouses in there, oh, Joanna. Joanna, a right. that that could be your next your next book. Um, question number two is: We're at Israel at seventy five. It's actually a pretty traumatic moment for Israeli society right now. Uh, have you played the game? I mean, we could pick any one of these figures: Abba Eben, uh, you know, Jabotinsky, Weitzman. You know, kind of like what would Weitzman say right now? Uh, you know, is is there one person's legacy that you think is particularly on point as to the present fishers in Israeli society right now? You know, it's probably Herzl, because Herzl wrote uh, a utop what's considered to be a utopian novel called Old New Land, Old right. New Land, um, in which he envisioned what the Jewish state would be like, and um, in many ways, Israel has exceeded those expectations. It's not a utopian novel. It's what actually happened. But in that novel, the villain is not an Arab. There's an Arab figure in that novel who's admirable, educated, articulate. Mm -hmm. And um, Herzl foresaw that people who were of that nature would get along with each other. The villain in that novel is a religious nationalist rabbi who uh, unfortunately, illustrates the dangers of, of racism. And I think Herzl would look today, he would be amazed at the accomplishments of Israel, stunned by the challenges that it faces and has overcome so far, and hoping that maybe even looking back at Alt Newland would, uh, would show a way out of the, uh, of the current situation. So, Third question for you. Um, here's my thesis about your book. You can accept it, challenge it, uh, speak about it. I think that each one of these figures are figures who uh, did not grow up with the trajectory of their ultimate Zionism being self-evident. Herzl, Brandeis, Golda, Ben Hecht, uh, but even right, each one of them had a whatever you want to call it, an aha moment where they took a turn and entered into the stream of Jewish history. And, uh, you know, so not so much their geography to the left, to the right, male, female. But my take on your book, Rick, is that you're exploring a dimension of the human soul that our, our stories are not written until they're written. Discuss. Well, it's a wonderful reading of it, Rabbi. I appreciate it. Um, it, it and I believe it's true um, in the sense that history is not, I, th I think, and these people illustrate that this fact, 
it's not impersonal economic, political, diplomatic forces. It's what individuals do when they decide to do it. And not everybody, very few people grow up and know what they want to do, much less become a historic figure. But when they're exposed to ideas and ideals and the history of their people, it goes back 3,500 years, they get inspired at some point and they look around and they say, there's something I can do. And even then, they don't intend to become a historic figure. They simply intend to do something. And with these eight people, they, they did more than something. But they should inspire us, I think, to believe that we're not all historic figures, but we all can contribute something, and every individual can. And that is the most inspiring lesson of all. Right. Amen, amen. Right. There are all these sort of Rabbi Akiva stories who midstream in life were able to um, deeply impact for the better. Uh, the condition of the Jewish people. And that's a message that, as you say, should and could inspire us all. Rick Richman, and none shall make them afraid. Eight stories of the modern state of Israel, a fabulous book. I got to say, this book would make a great gift. I mean, it, it's a great book to have on your shelf, but I think uh, readable, um, learning, uh, it just represents everything a great book should be. Uh, Rick, thank you so much for joining us on Park Avenue Podcast. I'll see you in Los Angeles next time I'm there. Thank you, Yaksamea. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah, El Bekur Shoh, Hallelujah.